0: How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Last Sunday, we saw that Solomon revealed two ways to respond to your sin. And that's really the right way to think about it. How will you and I respond to our sin? It's not whether or not we have sin. It's not even whether or not we have hard-heartedness. The question is, what will we do with it? How will we respond? We said that hiding sin prevents God's blessings. Solomon says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. And so we saw in the life of David his lack of prosperity due to his willingness to hide his sin. We saw him hide his sin to an extent, really, in an extreme way that's just truly unconscionable. But the question you and I must ask ourselves is not so much whether or not we see that in others, but the degree to which we see it in self. A friend of mine used to say, you know, we have have this strong compulsion to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And so often, especially when we're confronted with the reality of our sin, there's a lack of willingness to acknowledge the significance of it. We don't see ourselves accurately. David didn't see himself accurately. And of course, in David's case, it was a a case of massive hard-heartedness because David had the ability, he had the power to prevent really anyone from providing any consequences for him, anyone except God. And David was at least smart enough and at least humble enough to acknowledge that when Nathan brought his sin to his attention, that the far better response to his sin, to his unrepentant sin, to his hiding of his sin was to engage in a willingness to uncover it. We also said that confessing and forsaking sin results in God's mercy. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, while you and I can look back on our lives and see... Moments, perhaps even chapters, maybe even years worth of hard-hearted hiding of our sin. The moment you and I are willing to confess and forsake our sin is the moment that God begins to open up the floodgates of his compassion. Well, this morning in verse 14, you see another element of how we ought to respond to our sin. Really, these two verses go hand in hand. Sometimes it's hard to figure out the structure of the Proverbs, isn't it? You think you're in a flow, you think you're in a rhythm, and then all of a sudden Solomon completely shifts gears. Well, at least in these two verses, we know that he is in the same vein of thought. He's dealing for us with the pathway to happiness, what the Bible often calls blessedness or blessing. You see a pattern, and you see Solomon pointing out that patterns lead to certain consequences or certain results. Today, in this text, we'll see that one who fears God and sin enjoys blessing. While the one who hardens his heart experiences judgment. And we'll see these things. We want to look at these things so that we will be happy and avoid destruction. Now, some can be really hyper-spiritual and say, you know, Christianity is not about happiness. That is a dead-on true statement if we're talking about worldly happiness. But God wants you to be happy. I didn't say that he wants all your circumstances to be exactly how you would design them. See, there are different definitions of happiness. God's design for happiness really starts with holiness. It starts with a willingness to deny self. The person who denies self is the one who really begins to experience the fullness of joy in Christ. But let me just be extremely candid with you. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, If you're hiding something, no matter what it is, you're not experiencing fullness of happiness, and it renders you ineffective in the body of Christ, that hypocrisy, that Phariseeism is something that God does, obviously does not bless, and ultimately he exposes one way or another. The way Spurgeon liked to say it was, you can either humble yourself or be humbled. But friends, you and I live in perhaps the greatest society in all of history in terms of the ability to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and hide our sin. The production of the iPhone is perhaps the absolute best tool for you to hide your sin. You can sit there on your phone and do all kinds of things and mostly be convinced that no one knows what's going on, but that's going to leak out eventually. Your best hope is to plead with the Lord to expose you if you don't have the courage to do it yourself. And I say that as your loving brother. You know, my life is filled with opportunities, as yours is to some degree, but my life is filled with opportunities to call people to repentance. And there can be this flavor, there can be the appearance that when one is calling another to repentance, there's this judgmental Phariseeism. But if you're in Christ and you've experienced the joy of rejecting your sin and embracing God's design for your life, you really long for the people that you love to have that happiness and to abandon the Phariseeism in which they are living. But it's a tough road, isn't it? It's a tough road. Because we don't really know all the nuances and the details of each other's hearts. And even for those that you know and trust, you've known them a long time, you know they die for you, you probably, at least on occasion, have an inclination to question their motive. Why? Because even the best of people have the wrong motive from time to time. So what do you do? Some would say, well, you just trust the Lord. Well, trusting the Lord means having relationships with people. There's no such thing as a people as Christianity. There's no such thing as a love for Christ without love for his body. You may have been saturated in some environment where you've been taught quite different. You no, know it's all about you and the Lord. Let me tell you something. That is an aberrant, knee-jerk reaction to the control of Roman Catholicism. What do I mean by that? Roman Catholicism prevented people from having the Bible in their hands and produced not only a dependence upon the clergy, but the control of the clergy, right? So there was a control of the people. We'll tell you what the Bible says. And when we do it, we're going to say it in Latin, so you won't even understand it. All right? Those of you who have been in that context, when you get a Bible in your hand, you start reading. You're oh, my word, all the lies I've been told. Wait a minute, Jesus actually had siblings? I remember telling that a guy one time. He was saying to me, you know, I just don't understand Protestantism. You know, you guys are so different from what we teach. I said, well, what, what do you believe from the Bible that's different from what we believe? And he said, I don't, I don't have any idea what's in the Bible. I said, oh, well, let me show you something. And I showed him where Jesus had siblings, brothers and sisters. And man, did this guy catch fire. He wanted to go to his priest right then. I mean, he was so angry. He said, I've been told all my life that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And here, right there in my Bible, which I rarely read, I see the exact opposite is true. See, that kind of control being eliminated for the person who says, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a priest. I'm a part of the royal priesthood as the Apostle Peter has shown me. And so I have freedom and the ability to actually read the Bible and grow myself. Then that person feels not just liberated as he should, he feels more liberated than he should. And now he thinks, I don't need the body of Christ. And that sadly is perpetuated in a lot of churches where you're told, just come and hear the teaching. You don't need shepherding. You don't need church membership. You don't really need the body of Christ. Just be nice to each other as you drink coffee after the service, and then we'll see how it goes. But discernment in order to get to the place where you're enjoying holiness, you're enjoying spiritual growth, cannot happen without the body of Christ. If this is tough for you to swallow, just don't do it now, but when you leave here, read Romans 12. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Read those Texts of Scripture, which are rooted in the power of the gospel, Jesus saving those for whom he died, but the certain result that there would be an interdependence in the body. The more you fight that, the less joy you will have. Well, in our short but powerful text this morning, I want you to see first that persistent, healthy fear brings God's blessings. Verse 14 says, how blessed is the man who fears always. I don't have to tell you what always means. There is a call to do this in an uninterrupted way. Now think of it. If you've developed a pattern of fearing the right things, but there are pockets in your life, maybe there are specific, maybe even scheduled, think of it, scheduled times in your life, where you choose to abandon fear of the right things you have embraced idolatry and you are inviting destruction into your life i'll give you an example my freshman year in college i first heard the gospel and and i remember right where i was standing in my dorm room when i said these words i don't know if i said them out loud but i had thought i had come to know christ that i'd made some sort of profession and as i stood there i remember thinking man college is great. I'm playing football. People know me. I'm I'm enjoying this. And the result was a lot of self-idolatry as well as some idolatry of other people in my life. And I remember saying these words. I remember saying, you know, God, when I graduate, I'll get serious, but for now, I'm going to have lots of fun. And if you've been there, if you have any idea, uh, because you yourself can look back on your own life and say, yeah, I kind of did that too. You know of the destruction, at least in some sense, that I experienced. While I'm completely trusting in God's sovereignty and believing that God uses that debauchery in my life, using my failures even now to help other men avoid such failures, were I to do it again, I would not say that. Because of the destruction that I brought upon myself. Why did that happen? I didn't fear what necessarily should have been feared, specifically God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The beginning of wisdom is fear. And too many people have stripped Christians of the beauty and the joy of that reality. And they will say things like, you know, you're not called to fear. You have not been given a spirit of fear. What Paul is dealing with there when he tells Timothy that you haven't been called to a spirit of fear is Timothy's inclination to fear people. But you and I are told to fear God, and the result is blessing. Now, some of you have noticed. uh, By the way, I'm I'm curious about this. How many of uh, of you are reading out of and memorizing out of the ESV? Raise your hand. Okay, New American Standard, okay, so you see this morning a rather interesting difference. Now, we believe that the New American Standard is faithful to the original manuscripts, as is the ESV, but translators and their desire to be faithful to the Lord and His Word sometimes do things that maybe we wonder why they did. This is one of them. Why would the ESV add the words, fear the Lord? Well, because ultimately that's what Scripture tells us to fear. There's more, though, that we need to fear, and I believe that Solomon left it as fear and didn't include the Lord so that we would understand that there are more things that you should fear than just the Lord. But at this point, what we want to examine is the need for us to fear God and know that we will enjoy happiness. Think of it. In those days in your life when you didn't fear God, or even today, in the moment that you're willing to lash out at someone, you're willing to become angry at someone or pour your wrath out upon someone or to engage in gossip or bitterness or idolatry of any sort, You're willing to stand firm in your separation from someone, your division from someone in the body of Christ. You've found yourself able to justify that. I think you know that you're rejecting any mindset of a fear of God. You're saying in that moment, though you're not saying it out loud, you probably wouldn't even articulate it in your mind, what you're saying is, I don't fear God. And the presumption of that mindset in its extreme expression in Romans 3, Paul says is an indication that a person is yet condemned. I'm not saying that's true about you in those moments where you do that. But if that's the pervasive reality of your life, if you say, you know, it's better for me to apologize than to ask permission, if that's how you live specifically and especially regarding the commands of Scripture, then Paul says in Romans 3, the person that does that, the person that walks headlong into sin, saying, you know what, Christ died for my sins. He's condemned. So the one who fears God, though, on the other hand, enjoys happiness. Why? Because he acknowledges those truths. He acknowledges the warning signs. He acknowledges that the prohibitions given us in the word of God are for our protection. We uh, considered going to the Grand Canyon this last summer, and my wife said, you know, I kind of like our kids. I don't want to lose them. <laughs> So, and peop- we know people who've been there, and they talk about, you know, there's no, there's, you know, and there's no barrier between you and that big hole. And uh, our kids, being who our kids are, go 100 or so miles an hour all the time. Uh, we said, yeah, let's put that off till Jax is, I don't know, 50, uh, <laughs> just to be safe. We can look at pictures; they're pretty good. So we went to the Painted Desert. You know, you fall down that thing, you roll down a hill, you get bruised, you get back up, you get in the car, and off you go. But they're warning signs. They're warning signs. Big hole, don't fall. But in the life of the Christian, often those warning signs are rejected. And let's be honest the more you subject yourself to people who are willing to avoid the warning signs, the more you're going to be influenced to avoid the warning signs. And therefore, you are putting off God's blessings. You are not enjoying God's blessings. But the one who embraces the warning sign, the one who embraces the prohibitions, when God says, do not lie, how seriously do you and I take that? When we hear someone tell an absolute black and white bold lie, and it's so easy for us to say, wow, how do they do that? But yet you and I can easily exaggerate circumstances, and it's equally dishonest. And it's an an equal offense to God when we do that. When we stretch something beyond what it is, in particular when there's been a conflict, and the only things we want to point to are the areas where we did well and they did poorly. All of us have been guilty of that. But in the moment that we're willing to say, you know, this was my fault. This is where I failed. You know, last Sunday you heard from eight men who spoke of their experience at our men's retreat, and some of them confessed sin here in front of you. And I assure you that that has brought blessing as a result. The willingness to put your sin out there, to expose it yourself, rather than someone else having to expose it, is going to bring God's blessing. It's going to bring happiness. The one who fears God and says, you know what, as ugly as my sin is, I'd rather have God's favor than man's favor by confessing it. Even though I'm going to lose favor with some people when I confess my sin. I did that last Sunday and I would expect for some of you to hear some of what I confess might have caused you some consternation in your heart. I'm not confessing anything that's a repetitious unrepentant pattern of sin that would cause me to be disqualified in the ministry, but you know I'm a sinner because I'm breathing. How ridiculous would it be for me to never, ever be willing to draw attention to my own sin in your presence? And I'll tell you, I've experienced blessings since having done that. Letter B, the one who fears sin enjoys happiness. Happiness. So not just fearing God and the consequences, but sin itself. Sin is ugly. And the uglier you and I get in our sinful tendencies, the less ugly we recognize sin to be. As we walk into sin, we become desensitized to it. And the very act of engaging in the sin is in and of itself an abandonment of that with which God would bless us. Letter A, the one who fears God enjoys happiness. Letter B, the one who fears sin enjoys happiness. As Solomon has said here, how blessed is the man who fears always. You see that there is an incessant passion for engaging in right thinking about bad things and about good things. He fears God because he knows God is sovereign, and God ultimately disciplines those whom he loves. I've had this conversation with most of my children, probably five of my six children, regarding God's role in our lives as our Father. And when we get to the place in Hebrews where it says that discipline for the moment is not pleasant, why does the writer say that? Well, because it's not pleasant. But God disciplines those whom he loves. and So that discipline brings about what the writer of Hebrews calls the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The joy of being more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The beauty of what it is to be sanctified. You know, there's so much antinomianism floating around in Christendom today. The idea that, you know, you're no longer under the law, you're under grace. The person who says that where Paul has said that, that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, and therefore says you don't have to obey the law, has spurned God's grace. Because the person who has enjoyed God's grace is the one who most wants to obey his law. So, you know, you've come to know him. You want to obey his commands. But the one who fears sin enjoys the happiness that he enjoys because he knows that sin in and of itself not only brings God's judgment, it in itself is an ugly way to live. I mean, who really wants to be associated with and really characterized by debauchery? You say, well, you know, there are people in our society who are committed to that. Hugh Hefner went to the grave having exalted debauchery and really points to organized religion as the reason for why he chose such a lifestyle. So there are those certainly who in their debauchery based on what we see in Romans 1 have come to the place of desensitization and therefore they would say, you know, sin's great. What the church calls sin, no, it's really enjoyable, it's great. And yet you can be certain those are the most unhappy people on the planet. Why? Because they've become desensitized to their own conscience. Well, point number two, persistent hard-heartedness brings destruction. You notice this probably as you read through the Proverbs. Again, these are couplets. Uh, Solomon will say one thing, and then he'll say it another way, or really he'll make a mirror statement. There's a sense in which he's saying the same thing with each statement. He's pointing to one reality, and that enables us to come up with a title of a message like this, fear the pathway to happiness. Think of it, Solomon wouldn't be writing so as to help you understand the pathway to destruction so that you would engage in destruction. Solomon's hope is that as you read the Proverbs, you would abandon, you would really be prevented from experiencing destruction, that you would see the folly of it, that you would see the eternal... Suffering that comes with such a pathway. But ultimately, as is any believer's hope, the idea would be that you would embrace the pathway unto being blessed, pathway unto happiness. Persistent hard heartedness brings destruction. What is this idea of hardening one's heart? Again, this is a passage that really doesn't require a whole lot of explanation, a whole lot of instruction. But the idea here is that a person has engaged in a willingness to stick to what he thinks, to stick to what he wants, such that nothing could assuage him. You could say he's on a mission. He's so committed that regardless of anyone who might bring facts to the table, anyone who might bring some sort of honest, loving assessment to his life, he's utterly committed to justifying everything he has done, no matter what it takes. And believe me, I've heard some amazing stories in my lifetime as a pastor. Some amazing justifications. Even recently, a man said to me, Why are you making me yell at you? I mean, I've heard someone say, you know, you made me mad, but making me yell at you. The desensitization of the conscience is an amazing reality in the person's heart who is experiencing that, largely because he himself is unaware of the fact that it's so obvious. And in his hard-heartedness, he is unwilling to strip back the layers of callousness Because he doesn't want to be exposed. Paul speaks of this as the searing over of the heart as with a hot iron. Letter A on this note, the one who rejects conscience experiences destruction. The one who rejects conscience experiences destruction. Look with me at Romans 1.18. This is a hugely valuable passage for the unbeliever, especially the unbeliever who professes to be a believer while hanging on to his sin and living in it perpetually and choosing to justify it, hide it, or whatever he does to stay in it. My hope would be that if there is, for you, if in fact you are in this position or for someone you know is in this position, that there might be one shred of conscience left so that you or that person you know and love would not be turned over to a debased mind. It's the warning of Romans 1. Look at it with me, please. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a massive theological statement. The reality that ultimately... The anger, the righteous anger of God will be poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, let me jump to the gospel for a moment. For those who are genuinely in Christ, that's exactly what Christ received on your behalf. This is the beauty of penal substitution. Christ took what you and I deserve, and he gave us what he deserves. So lest you leave thinking, wow, that was a bummer. In the moment that you will confess and forsake your sins, not just confess them, but genuinely forsake them and turn to Christ, his efficacious blood is shown to have been sufficient and efficient for your forgiveness. But the certain result will be that you will want to live in such a way that proves it reading in Romans 1, 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. That which is known about God is evident within them. This is the natural born state of every human being. You know here Paul is not talking about Christians in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. He is saying that his existence is written on the heart of every human being. And so, when your friend at work says, "Oh, hey, by the way, I'm an atheist," in your heart, you can say, "Hmm, he might say that, but his conscience is on my side. He's lying, but his conscience knows better. He cannot believe that God does not exist because God writ his conscience, uh, uh, God wrote on his conscience his own existence. I was getting old English on you there for a minute when I said writ. It's evident to them. God made it evident to them. Here's another expression of that in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. What then? Do you think Satan might be willing to attack with his greatest efforts in order to eliminate this reality that people are without excuse? Creation. The religion of evolution going to great lengths to prove and point to the idea that things happened as a result of nothing creating them. That everything sort of created itself. There was nothing. But somehow, when there was nothing, including no God, that everything somehow just happened. That is not an oversimplification of the idea of evolution. You'll hear varying different arguments with regard to that. But the bottom line reality is that if there was no God, if there was no creator, then that which is created created itself on the other hand if there is a god who has displayed himself in truth in his word who existed before time and created time and all things within it then not only does that point to him it necessarily means that everyone who would deny his existence is without excuse in that dishonest denial And so the person who engages in sin, the person who engages in hard-heartedness, brings about destruction on his life because he is, in fact, denying what he knows to be true. And so we would call that a denial of conscience. He's doing everything he possibly can to convince himself that that which is true Is not true because if it's not true that God exists, then He is no longer accountable to God and His commands and prohibitions. It's that simple. How interesting is it in that Jesus has said that narrow is the pathway unto the Lord, meaning, therefore, that few will find it. He even says that. The result being that there are more people in the world who have not found that pathway, and therefore there are more people in the world who believe in the faith or the religion of evolution than those who don't. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that they are blinded. Satan has blinded them. They're willing to deny that which they see right before them. Why? Because it makes them feel good to eliminate conscience enables one to continue to live in such a way that there will be no consequences for what I do what I believe as you know many of you this passage goes on to point out that there will be those verse 20 since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse There are many who will take this path, but they are, in fact, without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. See that? You know, the physiology of the human brain is such that at some point, you know, you begin to kind of start to make sense. You get in your 20s, your 30s, that increases. Your 40s, you gain hopefully some wisdom from God's Word. You gain wisdom from other people. Uh, Eventually, you're exhibiting wisdom, particularly as a result of fearing God, fearing the consequences of sin. But for the person who rejects basic truth, eventually his heart becomes darkened. And he's desensitized to the most basic realities. Think of it. The person who denies the mathematic fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is going to have some really messed up math. If he thinks that 2 plus 2 equals 7, then it messes up everything else in his philosophy of mathematics. Same is true spiritually. If he's willing to deny the most basic reality of God's existence, then his life will be spiritually messy In fact, it will be darkened. Romans 1 goes on to say, in verse 22, professing to be wise. Interesting, huh? Professing to be wise. Isn't it those who most adamantly and passionately deny the basic reality that God does exist who would have you think they are the wisest people? Is that not true? passing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible god for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures and so you have these pockets of people all throughout the world especially in our country who worship animals they exchange the creator for the creation So they deny the existence of the Creator, (laughs) but ironically worship what He created. And so you see this rejection of conscience that ultimately results in destruction. The result is spiritual death. The result is. The wrath of God being rained down from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. Romans 2.12 says it this way, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And so you have this basic reality that the person who obeys God experiences blessing. The person who rejects God's commands experiences judgment but then he sort of fleshes this out in a very practical way so you see the reality of it in ways you and i can easily understand verse 14 for when gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are a law to themselves you see that The idea is that even though they don't have the law of God in written form, God has written his law on their hearts, not in the same precise and fullness of form as he does in the word of God that you hold in your hand, but he has written basic truth on man's heart. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately, that's a very important term, their thoughts alternately, alternately accusing or else defending them, right? Isn't that right? The person who has the law of God written on his heart will at times say, you know what, that's wrong. I won't engage in that behavior. And other times, the law of God written on his heart is what he actually uses to defend his conduct. Well, God made me, you know, a sexual being. Therefore, it must be okay when I engage in these things. It's the idea here. The unbeliever, in whose heart the law of God is written, will at times declare, that's wrong, I won't do it. But equally, in other moments, he will say, God has made me who I am, therefore it's okay. And he vacillates back and forth. But Paul's point here is to say that the law of God is written on man's heart, and this is called conscience. But the one who rejects his conscience does not enjoy God's happiness, God's blessing. He experiences destruction. Verse 15, again, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. The day is coming where all judgment will be laid out. And those who are willing to say, you know what, there is a God, and I will trust his son for access to him, they will experience the fullness of joy in him. But those who continue to reject conscience, even if they've never heard the gospel, they are without excuse. Now, what about you and me, though? I mean, You and I have a massive dosage of truth at our fingertips on a daily basis. And many would say, well, you know, what about that person on the other side of the world who never hears the gospel? The word of God is saying that he is without excuse. But the greater issue is what about you? The greater issue is what about those that you know, those upon whom you have influence, those whom you love? To what degree are you willing to say, you know, there have been plenty of times in my life where I've rejected this truth and I act as if God doesn't exist? And the result is that God withholds blessing from me. God disciplines me in that. But in the moments that I am willing to acknowledge not only God's existence, but his goodness and his love, his prohibitions and his commands, God pours out his kindness on me in great measure. Well, letter B, the one who rejects counsel experiences destruction. So not just conscience, Right? You knew we would get here. The one who rejects counsel experiences destruction. Pharaoh, maybe the premier example in scripture of the one who rejected counsel. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he warns him, The eternal one has sent me. You remember this Moses at the burning bush, God is commissioning him to go to the leaders of Israel first. He says, Who shall I tell them sent me? God simply says what you and I often refer to as Yahweh that term simply means existing one it's not past present or future it means eternal existence this is what separates God from all other entities God has always existed he created ex nihilo he created what he created out of nothing nothing existed but God always existed and he always will God is in fact eternal you could say he's pretemporal he predates time, and that's what Moses told the leaders of Israel, the eternal one. He said the same thing to Pharaoh. Exodus 3, verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he warned Pharaoh time and time again, and Pharaoh rejected that warning. God's command to Moses was to tell Pharaoh, I'm going to take his firstborn. In fact, I'm going to take the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. For the Israelites who would place blood above the doorway, they would experience Passover. It's where we get that term. The Spirit of God would pass over their homes Grant grace to them, not execute their firstborn, but execute the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And while Pharaoh experienced that execution of his firstborn, he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You he say, wait a minute. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Go back with me for a moment to Exodus 1, 15. Scripture tells us, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Don't tell me that God initiated the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This is well before God further hardened Pharaoh's heart. This was a man who said, kill babies, execute them. That level of hardening of heart is not something with which our culture is unfamiliar. May it be that the further hardening of Pharaoh's heart, a very Romans 1-esque reality, that God would turn them over to a debased mind, rooted in or being traced back to those moments when Paul says they knew God, but they were not thankful to him. May it be that that theological premise, that basic theological reality would not be forgotten by you and me. That as we look at our culture and we see a culture utterly and nearly completely desensitized to the willingness to take human life largely for the sake of convenience, that we would look at the life of Pharaoh and see, here is a premier example of one who experienced not only the withholding of blessing, but experienced destruction as a result of his persistent, deliberate, intentional, strategic, hard-heartedness. God disciplined, really God punished Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, and yet Pharaoh continued to say, you may not leave. And even when he did let them leave, he went to get them. And when he did, God killed Pharaoh and every one of his soldiers and horses. Not one was left living. And so the destruction of Pharaoh is on display, not only for those in that day that pagan nations would look on and fear the one true God of heaven, but that you and I today would fear the one true God of heaven, but that we would live our lives in such a way that proves that fear that people around us would want to know him. Yes, out of fear of him, but most certainly out of the reality that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God so that those who have acknowledged not only their waywardness, not you know, just their mistakes, their bad decisions, but their deliberate, persevering, hard-heartedness A deliberate choice to say, you know what, I think I can hide this one pocket of sin. You know, I do mostly good in my life. I mean, look at all the things I've done for people. And yet, you know, surely I can enjoy this this one hidden reality. You know, many times it's an idol of the heart. It's an attitude. You don't think it's being expressed. You don't think other people see it. You hope they don't. You know, you're willing, how about this? You're willing to go to someone about someone else? You ever done this? You go to someone about someone else? You know, I just can't believe she did that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, I'm so sorry. That's, that doesn't sound good. Let's, let's go address that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I've decided to let it go. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Those hidden realities. It's easy for you and me to look at Pharaoh and say, well, he killed babies. So surely the sins of my heart, the wickedness of my heart, the errors of my heart are not subject to God's judgment. No, yours and mine are greatly subject to God's judgment. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That's powerful. Is that you? You know, you've been corrected so many times. You've heard truth so many times. And yet you somehow find a way to justify your inaction, to justify your heart attitude. he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. About that time when I had made that ugly statement that I was going to enjoy life and get right with God later, I was sitting at First Baptist Church in Bolivar, Missouri. I didn't do that very often. But this one morning, I remember sitting on the back row and, Nothing wrong with sitting on the back row, by the way. It's a small room. There's a big church sitting on the back row, not really wanting to hear anything. And I remember this preacher talking about submitting your life to Christ, talking about repenting of sins. And he said, you know, there does come a time when God says, time's up. And he did this. He acted as if he were... Grabbing someone by the collar. And he said, there will be a time when God will grab you by the collar and he will kick you into the eternal abyss because you have so repeatedly stiffened your neck. Scripture refers to this as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That at the moment when the Holy Spirit is moving on a person's heart, He rejects the truth of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. That is a persistent hardening of heart that leads to eternal destruction. The person who rejects conscience the person who rejects counsel ultimately brings destruction upon himself. You might be thinking, well, didn't God design a hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that he could show himself to be glorious? Let's look at it. What shall we say then? Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? This is after he has said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and he's not talking about two countries. He's talking about two twins. Twins. In the womb, he makes it clear he's talking about two twins because he says that this took place while they were in the womb and not after. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says... To Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, you know, most of you, we believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God. But believing wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God, does not justify or dismiss Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. Pharaoh chose by his will to subject himself to the destruction of God by hardening his own heart. And in so doing, he brought about the wrath of God upon himself such that God would further harden his heart. Keep reading, verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Stay with me. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now go back. Let's do a little grammatical exercise here. Look closely at what is said and what is not said. In verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The text clearly points out that he prepared some beforehand in glory. The text does not say that he prepared vessels of destruction. This is a reflexive verb. It points back to the subject. The one whose heart is being hardened is the one who is hardening his own heart. Those who reject the glory and the joy and the compassion of Jesus Christ do so By the willful intent of their own hearts. And they are culpable. And that was you and that was me. So back to our proverb. Persistent healthy fear brings God's blessings. How blessed is the man who fears always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Even like we saw last week the one who confesses and forsakes his sins will certainly experience mercy. But the one who conceals his sin will not find prosperity. He will ultimately experience destruction. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. We could go through that whole section there in chapter 3 and chapter 4. We won't, but I'll just pull this one statement. Today, while today is still today, do not harden your heart. Scripture tells us that the mercies of God are new every morning, and the mercy of God is fully poured out upon all those who will repent of their sin by confessing their sin and believing in Jesus Christ and proving that by forsaking their sin. Let's look to him now in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for the richness of your word, the great beauty and concision of the Proverbs that show us things in a twofold fashion, really a couplet that reveals to us that fear of you, fear of sin will result in happiness, and yet a willingness to continue hardening our hearts will most certainly for the believer result in discipline that's not pleasant for the unbeliever, Father, the one who has repeatedly, persistently, uninterruptedly, incessantly chosen to harden his heart against truth, Father, do the work that you and you alone can do and soften that heart today. Move on that person's heart that he would enjoy the reality of softening his own heart, that he would, in fact, say, today is the day where I will no longer harden my heart, but I will Enjoy the happiness that comes with confessing and forsaking my sin. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.